0: Turn to First Thessalonians chapter 3 as we continue to look at prayer through the prayers of Paul. <clears throat> I'm going to be verses uh, 9 through 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So this is the word of our Lord. 1 Thessalonians 3, starting at verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith? Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. A main characteristic of Paul's prayers for the church is, in his letters, is his passion for the people. He doesn't pray abstract prayers. He's praying for real people. He prays for the people that he met, which is the case here in First Thessalonians. But he also prays for people he never met. And he tells them, I've been praying for you. He's deeply concerned for those whom he's praying. And, and, and if you look at Paul's ministry, he prays, he preaches, and he writes because of people. Uh, I've, I've heard people say, I'm in the ministry because I love preaching. That's not a good reason to be in the ministry. Uh, it, 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 the ministry is about people. Christianity, in, on this level, is about ministering to people and being passionate about people. And we want to see that tonight in Paul's prayer, that he prays because he's passionate For people, he has a passion for people. And before, so the prayer itself is in the verses that we read, verses nine through thirteen. But before we look at the prayer, let's let's look at the context of First Thessalonians and see that the prayer that Paul's prays in these verses that we just read is a product of that passion for people. They're not in the vacuum. They're not just uh, nice words said to God. They're not just a, a poem or poetry. They are based on actual love for people. And as you read this prayer, you notice that Paul prays because of his intense longing to be with the Thessalonians. He's praying that the Lord would bring him back to Thessalonica so that he can be of service to them, so that their faith may be strengthened through them. You... you, Probably know this story of how the church was planted, was founded. Uh, the Lord established the Thessalonian church through Paul and his companions during his second missionary uh, journey. You remember the uh, the call of the Macedonian man when uh, Paul's in Troas in, in modern-day Turkey, and he can the man said, "Come, come to us," and he crossed into Europe. Thessalonica was in Macedonia. And Macedonia is not today's, there's a country in the world today called Macedonia, but that's not Greek Macedonian. The country today used to be part of Yugoslavia. It's called Macedonia. So this is northern Greece, and Paul goes there, and he is preaching the gospel there for a while. Now, before Paul got got there, Paul and Silas had been beaten, uh, severely beaten, and arrested in Philippi. Remember the story where they are in fetters in the dungeon singing hymns at midnight? Just what we all would do, right? If we're beaten up and are in prison, that's all we'd do at midnight. We'd sing hymns. After they were let go, remember how the guys went to let him go quietly because he was a Roman citizen and they didn't know that? And he said, no, no, no you come coming free us. And they did that. But then they said, would you please leave town? We don't want you here in Philippi. So they leave town. And the next stop on their journey is Thessalonica. He's just following the road, literally following the road to the next city, the next city, and the next city. And Paul, right away, as he starts, uh, as he gets to Thessalonica, barely having recovered from being beaten with a cane, being in prison all night, uh, he starts his usual practice of evangelism and establish a church. So Paul would wake up every day, and I think the first thought was, hmm, what church should I plant today? That's how he comes to Thessalonica. Yet opposition once again arose there in Thessalonica, uh, and he had to leave the city after just a few weeks there. Uh, in, in the book of Acts, only, uh, the book of Acts only refers to three weekends, three Sabbath days in Thessalonica. So he could have been as few as two weeks, right? Or 15, 16 days. Uh, may, maybe a little longer. But that, that's how much it took for Paul to establish that church through the preaching of, of, of the gospel. And he is asked asked to leave town. He is kicked out of town. He comes, goes down the road to Berea. And uh, Berea, he, in Berea he found a little bit of respite there. Remember how the Bereans are commended? Uh, in the scriptures because they were more noble in that they would hear the word proclaimed and then they would check their Bibles to see if what Paul was saying was actually grounded in the scriptures. And if it was, they would hold on to that. But just after that brief brief um, um, this, uh, respite there, he moves on to Athens. And in Athens, he has the most discouraging recorded part of his ministry. Now, there's all kinds of things about Paul's ministry that's not recorded uh, in, in there, but very few conversions in Athens. The, uh, the spirit's not moving there like it did. He did in other parts of the, his missionary journey. And then when he leaves Athens, he goes to Corinth, and Corinth was the most immoral city in the Greek land, and that's where he finds himself when he's writing First Thessalonians. Once he got in Corinth, Paul had a, an Elijah moment. You know what the Elijah moment is? It's a moment of discouragement in the ministry where you think you're all by yourself, that there's nobody else with you. And uh, even though the Lord has given you great, great uh, proofs of His presence throughout your life, you just feel like, oh, I'm all alone here to do all this and there's nobody here. In Acts 18, verses 9 through 11, we read this, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night, in the, in the night by a vision, do not be afraid, but speak, and do not be, keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So God knew that Paul was discouraged and said, hey, I have, I have people for you here. Preach the gospel. Do your, your, what I call you to do. And early in his stay in Corinth, and out of great concern for the people, Paul writes this letter this fledgling church he had to leave behind in a hurry look what he says at verse 17 of chapter 2 he says but we brethren having been taken away from you you for a short time in presence not in heart endeavored more eagerly to see you face to face face, see your face with great desire he wants to be back there with them look at chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Paul tried and tried and tried to go back to Thessalonica. He just couldn't. So he sends Timothy, and now he's he's waiting to hear from them. He's like at the edge of his seat waiting to hear from them. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it. It's the second time he can no longer endure the situation, right? I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. So he sent Timothy. Timothy's just taking longer than what Paul wants. So he sends somebody else to make sure that they are okay. That's how eager he is for them. And what we see here is a Christian so committed to the well-being of other Christians... Especially new, especially new Christians, that he is simply burning up inside to be with them, to help them, to nurture them, to feed them, to stabilize them. That's what Paul wants for the Thessalonians. Now Paul is a passionate man. You read, you read his epistles, you read the book of Acts, you, you, you're left with no doubt that he's a passionate man, And he's deeply entangled in the lives of real people. The ministry for Paul was about people. Nothing else. I'm assuming certain things, right? We're assuming that we all know that everything's for the glory of God. And that Christ is primary. So uh, that's why I'm not saying those things. On that foundation, the ministry for Paul was all about people. He was passionate about them. Uh, You know how Paul tells us to be anxious for nothing? Nothing in the book of Philippians. And I think he practiced that most of the time, but there was one thing he was always anxious for. You know what it was? People. The people of the churches that he ministered to. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight 28-29, he says, Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. Other translations say, My deep anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? He is just concerned for the church, for the people that he's been ministering to, the people who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not something, someone intoxicated with ideas, but unconcerned with people. He's not an ivory tower theologian that is only concerned about ideas and not thinking about the people that those ideas affect. This is not a person who is content to minister at a distance. If Paul lived today, he would not be a blogger. Twitter would not be his universe. He would be there with the people. This is not a person who's content to be away from the people. This is a person who passionately serves the people of God directly. And that passion gives birth to real prayer. That's where these prayers come from. And Paul's prayer also arises out of, a, of passionate affection, that seeks the good of others. Not their praise, not their gratitude, not their acceptance, but their good. is is interesting. Remember, um, a report comes to Paul. He's in jail in Rome. And the report comes to Paul that some people are preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, hoping that Paul would get in trouble for their preaching. So they're literally preaching with this, the ulterior motive of wanting to get Paul to be even more trouble. And what's Paul's attitude? That's great. People are hearing the gospel. I don't care. I don't care if I'm going to get any more in trouble. I'm, I'm, I want the people, my heart's for the people to hear um, the word of God. I don't care what the motive, I prefer that it would be of a good motive, but hey, if all, all this going to happen is get a, I'm going to get in trouble, that's not a problem. And and that should be our approach. We are to minister to others, including in our prayer, not because we love ministry, but because we love people. And when we think of people, we should be thinking, how can I be most useful to them? How can I best glorify God by serving His people? That's what we need to be thinking about. Not how can I feel most comfortable and appreciated while engaging some acceptable form of Christian ministry? We should not serve people out of just guilt. Does it make sense? I think, and I'm guilty of that too, I just finished listening to a 12, they say 12, but it's like 14 or 15 parts, but a 12-part podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. I don't know if anybody has listened to, to that. It's a very discouraging podcast. We wouldn't agree with everything they. We would not agree with all the analysis they've done because they're coming from way further left than what we are. Like they did have a problem with complementarianism. They they, they would think there'll be that women should be in in office and so on. But the things that they say in that that was going on and they can prove that was going on at Morris Hill. Just a guilt-driven culture where they. They did proclaim the gospel, and yet what motivated people was duty and guilt. And my personality goes that way. So as I, I'm listening to that, I never had the attitude of, "Oh, this will never happen to us." My mind was, like, "What if this is our? This, what if this is my ministry? What if this is the podcast about me in the future?" So when we're ministering to people, we should never be motivated by guilt. Uh, the Bible says I should be serving people, so I need to figure out something here that I can do. And I'd be very comfortable still while doing it. Our thought has to be, how can I best glorify God by serving His people? <clears throat> we, we, we need to be asking ourselves, as we think about people in the church, how we can serve them. We need to be asking ourselves, how shall the Christian service to which God calls me, right? We receive that from God. How can that be enhanced by my daily death, by my commitment to take up my cross daily and die? Isn't that what Christ calls us to? Nothing short than daily death. When he says in Luke chapter 9 that his disciples are to pick up his cross daily and follow him. The cross there is not suffering. That's not what he's talking about. A first century Christian would look at a cross and the first thought would be death. It would be an ab- abhorrent to a first Christian, century Christian to walk into a church and have a cross up front. It's appropriate now because it's changed the symbol. To us, this is life. A first century Christian who lived under the Roman law and saw crucifixions every day, they saw the cross, they'll be abhorrent to them. So when Christ says, pick up your cross and follow me, he doesn't say, oh, just suffer, you know, don't have your coffee today, or whatever. No, it's die. And that when we are trying to serve people, that's what we ask, how can my ministry today be enhanced by my dying today so that I can follow Christ? You know, we we find joy in ministering to, to others, and we should find joy in ministering to others, but our joy, our happiness, is the byproduct of serving others. Does it make sense to you? We don't find our identity in serving others. We don't find our reason to exist in serving others. We don't find our joy in serving others. We find our joy in Christ, and as a byproduct of serving others, then we are joyful. As we read here, Paul is in agony out of his concern for their good. Look at verses uh, 1 through 5 of chapter 3. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are pointed to this, For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we should suffer tribulation just just as it's happened. And you know, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. lest by some means, the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. He wants to strengthen them and encourage them in their faith so that they would not be unsettled by trials. So what does he do? He prays for them. And He calls us to do the same open-eyed, that is, intentional, death-to-self-interest for the good of others sort of prayer as He prays for the Thessalonians. That's the call that we have. Not to be driven by guilt, but really to be driven by death. Our death in Jesus Christ. And Paul's prayers he spring from unaffected delight at reports of the Thessalonians' faith, love, perseverance, and strength. He hears what's going on with them, and he just can't help but pour himself in prayer before the Lord. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8 of chapter 3. <clears throat> but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you all always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were com- comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if we stand fast in the Lord. He heard what the Lord was doing in people's lives, and he was excited about it. That drove him to his knees. Paul is genuinely interested and excited for God, what God is doing in the Thessalonians. And we're called to that sort of excitement. We're called to want to know what's, what the Lord is doing in people's lives. And to be excited about that, and to praise God for that. Prayers that are devoid of this kind of love, and this is important, prayer that is devoid of this kind of love, these prayers are phony, hollow, and shallow. If you're not interested in what the Lord is doing in other people's lives, we have no passion for them. And our prayers are hollow, shallow, really fake. So Paul is driven to prayer by the great passion he has for the people that God has put in their lives. People he met, like the Thessalonians, and people who he never met there's at least two letters in the New Testament that, that, that Paul never met those people. You know where they are? One is Colossians. The other one is his greatest theological treatise in the New Testament, the book of Romans. He'd never been there. He didn't meet them till later. And yet, when you look at the fervent prayers he prays for the Romans in the book of Romans... It's like as if he knew them intimately, and to a certain measure he did because he sought out to know who they were. Paul, that picture I have of Paul is often just looking for travelers coming down the road, waiting for them to tell him how people were doing in other places, so that he could praise the Lord for them and pray for them. And that has to be the same sort of passion that drives us uh, to to prayer. So this was the introduction. My plan is to then now talk about the prayer and see four, four things that uh, can help us in our own prayer, but we'll save that for next time since we're most up to the hour. So the encouragement, and we leave to the. Uh, just look at the background of Paul's prayer here in First Thessalonians. Is, is this? Let us be passionate about people. If we're passionate about people, passion that's grounded on the glory of God and the work of Christ, then in our prayer life we have no trouble. Right? So let's be passionate about people. Let's know what's going on so we can pray for them. Let's love them. Instead of putting people down, I just can you imagine the revival that would bring if the only way we put people down was to put them down on our prayer list to pray for them? That's the passion that Paul had in his prayers for his people. Any comments or questions before we close? Let's break. Father heaven, thank you so much that you're good to us. Thank you for the example of godly men, godly people, people who are flawed like we are, yet they persevered in serving you out of love for you and passion for people. We pray that we would be passionate about your church, about people we come in contact with, and that we would put that passion in prayer for them. We pray that you revive our hearts, Father, that we might, um, as we serve you, out of love for you and for people, that we would experience your joy, and that joy would be our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.